Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. Boom, I'm in the room. Welcome everybody to Ordinary People's Extraordinary Stories. Now I've got a great fellow on today. Um, so what I'll do is I'll I'll bring him in and then we'll pose the questions and then we'll see where the conversation takes us. So without too much further ado, let's bring in John. <laughs> Welcome Thanks John. It's great to have you. So thank you. John, if you can tell me when and where you were born. And if you can describe to me what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received. So the platform's yours. Okay, thanks, Tim. Uh, glad to be here. Is uh, My name is John A. Arendt, Brink, B-R-I-N-K. And uh, as I said earlier, I live in central British Columbia, Canada, uh, everybody knows where Vancouver is. I'm 800 uh, or 500 miles north of Vancouver, central British Columbia. I was born November the 1st, 1940, in northern Holland, the extreme northeastern part of Holland. And as you well uh, know and are aware of, uh, it was the beginning of the war that uh, started Second World War. April 1940, and uh, we were had a family in the extreme northeastern part of Holland, within 20 minutes of the German border, and about 20 minutes from the sea. Uh, the, and Denmark would be further north from there. So a, a general idea of where we were. Uh, uh, as I said, uh, uh, I was born November the first, 1940. My dad was drafted into the Dutch army in April of 1940. And my mom had two other children, one daughter, a sister now of me, that was one year older and a brother two years older. Uh, my dad, the last time they heard from him was in the bombing of Rotterdam where thousands of people died. Uh, early in the war, and uh, it would take five years before they would know if he had survived, was dead or alive. So the war years were difficult, to say the least. I still remember from the time I was three and a half, four years old, bombers overhead, hundreds of bombers overhead, bombing Germany. And... Uh, uh, you know, the it was a difficult time for our family and my mother and her three children. Uh, you know, we would watch outside on the deck behind our house as the bombers were flying overhead, daytime and nighttime bombers. Not because it was so exciting to watch them. It was safer to be outside than inside. In a distance, we could see cities burning in Germany. And, uh, you know, so it was a difficult time. Uh, I still remember 
from the time we were, I was five years old, uh, you know, the, there was not much food. The coldest winter on record in Holland was the winter 1944, 1945. Uh, it, they were called it the hunger winter. And we as a small family, my mother and his three kids, we would go out in the morning with gunny sacks into the railroad and collect anything burnable and eatable. I still remember even now the, the extreme feeling of cold. I can still physically feel it. The same is the feeling of hunger. And then at the same knowing anxiety uh, of my mother and the fear that everybody had being under occupation. Uh, I believe I was affected by the inner child uh, uh, anxiety of losing that one parent that was taking care of us. And then also seeing far too many things that I should not have seen and affected by PTSD. So we were liberated by the Canadians, April the 12th, 1945. I always knew from that point forward that I would go to, as soon as I could, to Canada, the land of my heroes. And, uh, you know, so uh, I wanted to go when I was 17, but I was then drafted into the Dutch Air Force. My parents wouldn't let me go before that. And then I was for two and a half years in the Dutch Air Force and then worked in the lumber industry in Holland. And, uh, you know, and then finally emigrated when I was 24 years old. My academic life was not hopefully wow. successful. So let's let's just take you back then. That's that's a hell of an upbringing. Um, yeah. So I, I, my my parents went through the war, and um, my mother's still alive. Uh, she was born in thirty nine, um, so she she remembers the war and, and growing up uh, just outside London. So yeah. So you was under occupation, and um, I guess it must have been really difficult. I mean. From your early days, can can you remember much about uh, about the area that you grew up in, and were the Germans in your your town at that time? We were under occupation, uh, Tim. Every day was a difficult day, especially towards the latter end. Uh, you know, when I was uh, approaching five years old, every morning we would go out. The kids, uh, my brother, my sister his gunny sacks, to collect anything burnable and eatable. Uh, we go in the railroad yards. If the parents would go in there, they would shoot them. Besides, they would boot us one, and uh, we just came back the following day. Uh, but uh, I do, I remember, yeah, I still remember the sound of hundreds of airplanes in the air is a sound you will never forget. And then the other part being uh, the the... Uh, as you can visualize Holland, the northeastern part is the Canadians pushed the Germans through the west side of Holland, uh, through yeah. the north, through the province where I was born. They were trying to get back into Germany, and uh, we were only 20 minutes away from the border. And uh, they did have very little left at that point, the Germans, and were very scared of everything around them. Uh, we saw 
far too many people being shot and killed. And for a young person, uh, you know, the I remember well seeing far too many things that we should not have seen. Yeah. Hmm. So being liberated at the end of the war then, that uh, that must have been quite something. But it didn't end there, did it? I mean, you were liberated, but the rationing and, and, and the food must have still been scarce and all the rest of it because... You've got you've got the Germans leaving. You've got the Canadians coming through, um, and they were. I guess they carried on fighting on, but they were held up at that time at Lake Forty Four, um, on the Elbe River. Was it? Was it the Elbe or the, the Rhine? They didn't get across the Rhine until um, into Forty Five. You see, there I'm in the extreme northeastern part. The rivers. Holland is a delta, right? So the main rivers yeah. are flowing through the center of Holland. And, uh, you know, so the Canadians came through the west side and pushed across the coast there into the extreme north. They liberated our town April the 12th, 1945. And uh, then my dad came back after five years, but... I've ne- I never met him, or the kids never met him. We thought, for all intents and purposes, he was dead. And, mm. uh, you know, so the other thing that a lot of people don't fully appreciate sometimes is that the war, although the war ended in Holland May the 5th, 1945, that the results of the, the after the war to believe or some people believe that everything goes back to normal that is not the case families never became the same again Uh, a lot of things that we consider be part of our normal living it would take years and before it got back to any sense of normality and it would take probably at least one generation if not more than one to get back to a sense of stability. And uh, especially if you look around the world today, looking at the Ukraine, now at Israel and other places, is that the effect on young people and kids in particular, but to the whole population, that it will change their lives forever and mm. for their generation, for sure, and if not others. So you asked me about my education after the war, thanks to time to get back to a sense of normal. Obviously, the family, my, my mom and dad were apart for five years, and it took time for them to readjust. I believe in a way they never did. Uh, you know, my dad never would talk about the, the, the war and, and developed a drinking problem that stayed with him till the end. Although he was very functional and he was a very good parent, but alcohol uh, was uh, uh, one of his challenges. Uh, For me, uh, I was not an academic success. I failed grade three and I failed grade seven three times. And then I was 14. And then my suggestion was made. My parents were beautiful people but to send me to the mentally challenged school 
Fortunately, they didn't do that or get me a job. So they got me a job in a furniture factory. And, uh, you know, and I became a furniture maker. Oh. And so, so just just looking a little bit uh, around the time that you you did the, the war ended, and although life never ever gets back to any sort of normality for some years, did, did were you did you get into school, um, and your schooling days? How did that uh, come about? The, the, because was much of Holland destroyed during that period? I, I know Germany got pretty well beaten up, but I don't know about Holland at that time. Were, were the schools and that? It's affected five years of war, right? So, yeah. But a lot of the infrastructure was still there. And the same in a way in, in Germany, uh, Tim, that... Uh, in Germany, obviously, the main industrial areas, uh, the harbors, and some of the other key areas were bombed. But mm-hmm. a lot of the smaller communities, average communities, really didn't. But still, obviously, as a big portion of the population did not directly or indirectly survive the war. So it took generations before things came back to normal. Interestingly enough, even when I was going to the lower classes in school, we already developed an ongoing relationship with the German uh, kids on the other side of the border because in war like this, most of the population, same as in this war, we were all victims, the Germans as well Mm. as the Dutch, the English, the, the Belgian, and throughout the world. It was the leadership, Hitler, and 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 the people around him, that uh, obviously controlled what was going on. So, but uh, fairly quickly after the war, at least the the two populations started interacting. But it took many, many, many years before things got back to normal, if you wish, if there is yeah. such a and. Uh, but for me, uh, in terms of uh, in Holland, no different than likely for you, is that if you wanted to build a career and get married and buy a house, you had to have a good job and you had to then have a good education. So every time uh, I, I was troubled by the fact that uh, I failed grade three and obviously uh, you know, uh, finished my schooling at the age of 14 and became a laborer. Mm. So in a way, I kind of felt I had failed. And, uh, you know, so, but at the same time, uh, you know, the I still had the dream of going to Canada. Mm-hmm. And I went to Canada when I was 24. And I wanted yeah. to, I always knew that I had the same qualities than most other people had that went on to college and university. And I knew I could do it, but I had to start from nothing. So I, I left in July of 1965, one suitcase, three books, two set of clothes, and $150 and went to 
British Columbia to build a lumber mill. Hmm. So let's just take, can, I, can I just take you back a little bit then? So you yeah. left school at 14 and your your parents put you got found you a job uh, in a furniture where, or factory. Yeah. So how did you start there? Did, did, I mean, did you start right at the lowest level, sweeping up the, the floor yeah. before you, yeah. you, you managed to go yeah. on? And, and how, long were, how long were you at the factory? I was there for a couple of years, and then, uh, you know, I was getting ready to go into the Air Force. So I probably right up to the time that I was 17 and a half, and then I was 18, I was drafted into the Dutch Air Force. And then in the evenings, I would go to uh, college and do uh, become a furniture maker and get qualifications to become a furniture maker. So that's what I did. So, so when you got drafted into the Air Force, um, what role did you get and what rank did you come in at? I came in as a, as a trainee or an, an infantry soldier to get my training. And uh, I was drafted in January of uh, 1958. And, uh, you know, so uh, uh, in the Dutch Air Force, and they put me in special forces uh, and, uh, and, and Air Force police. So that's what I did. And uh, I stayed there for two months, uh, two years and six months. Mm-hmm. So whereabouts were you based then? I was based in southern Holland initially. That's where I got my training. And then I was based in a number of other places, including a NATO base in Baden-Baden in Germany. Uh, but most of the time I was uh, based at airports throughout Holland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so the Dutch... Um... So, so Baden, Baden, that's in say in Germany. Was was that right. part of the, the occupation forces at the time? Uh, well, this was uh, nineteen fifty eight, right? So yeah. the thing had become to more normal, if you wish. Again, there was Eastern Europe, Western, uh, uh, Eastern Canada, uh, Eastern Germany, Eastern and Western Germany. Germany. Yeah. So that already was uh, no longer directly under. Uh, uh, the man is uh, under occupation by the the op- occupying forces, save and except for the sharing of Berlin and uh, East and West. You know, yeah, so, so by well, then, I spent, that was a NATO base. Yeah, I spent two and a half years in Berlin um, from 1978 uh, to 1980. Correct. Uh, and we, we had an absolute wonderful time there. Correct. And before that, I was I was based in Munster in, uh, oh, yeah. in Germany. Yeah, um, I, yeah. So that's a, that's a lovely town, actually. It, it wasn't that beaten up during the war. And then later, um, I did cellar as well in Germany, sure. so three tours of Germany, which was yeah. great for us. Um, yeah. So once you finished the Air Force then, uh, and you were doing your your evening studies to to get your qualifications. Did you get the qualifications uh, while you were still in, or did you finish off when you came out of the air force? 
uh, when I was in the Air Force, it was pretty much quite busy, obviously, uh, being, uh, you know, in, in special forces in particular. And then uh, I did a fair amount of studying while I was uh, in the, at the Air Force, uh, you know, mainly in areas that had my interest, uh, entrepreneurship, business, all of those kind of things. Mm. So what did you do when you when you left the, the Air Force after you'd finished your national service, I guess it would have been? Yeah, so the uh, I was uh, tw- nearly 21, and uh, I worked in the forest industry, uh, one of the largest lumber importers of Western Europe and uh, Holland, and uh, for about three years, and then decided to go to Canada. So how easy was that for you to, to, to make that jump from, from Holland to Canada? Well, Canada is paradise uh, in my view. And uh, obviously I didn't speak English, uh, you know, and I didn't know anybody here, didn't speak the language, didn't know a soul and didn't have a job. So I arrived in Vancouver in July of 1965. So, I mean, most most Dutch kids nowadays, I mean, all speak English as as a, as a second language. It's, I guess, English is almost the first language in Holland nowadays. We're, we're Correct. So, 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 back in your day, then you didn't learn English at school. Not in grade seven, no. Okay. Yeah. So you arrived in Canada then, not speaking English. Correct. No job, no family. So, what did you do? How? What was your? What? How did you fly? Did you fly there, or did you have to? Uh, I to Montreal. Montreal. You flew. Took the train four days, five nights from Montreal to Vancouver. Yeah. Came off the train, went to the immigration department. Fortunately, there was a German fellow, uh, and I could speak some German. I talked to the German fellow told them that I wanted to build my own lumber mill. And he said, go to Prince George. That's where they're building mills. That's where there's pulp mills, sawmills. So I took the bus to Prince George and uh, came off the bus here in Prince George late July 1965. And I had a suitcase, two sets of clothes, three books. And then I had... A total of wow, twenty dollars and forty-seven cents. You certainly couldn't retire on that amount of money. <laughs> no, or buy any lumber mills, you know. Yeah. So, but what I did have attitude. I'm always positive. Find my passion and work ethic, and uh, so I got a job piling lumber. And then gradually, within a couple of years, I had bought an interest in a sawmill in the Yukon. That is just next to Alaska. Yeah. And, and I was there for five years, left there, came back to Prince George, and then started an operation here. They call it the Brink Forest Products Company. Uh, and build started building a force company, and yeah. now nearly fifty years later, 
that was in 1975. I started a company. Now, 50 years later, we have one of the larger forest companies in Canada. Uh, we have 10 other different companies. We employ normally around 400 people or so. And uh, uh, I'm an author uh, since that time. Uh, wrote three books, Against All Odds. It's not a hurrah, hurrah. John, it's a biology of John, uh, biographic uh, book. Not about hurrah, hurrah, John, but in spite of it all. Then wrote another book that is Finding Your Passion, Living the Dream. I just want to make sure I get it on the camera yeah. here. Liv Living the Dream. And then the other thing that I didn't know I had is that in 1997, I walked into a store here and a bookstore, and I opened a book, and the title of the book was Driven to Distraction, and it was about ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And I said, oh, my God, that's me. And I bought the book, started to know more about ADHD. And then, I don't know how familiar you are with ADHD. I I've call heard it, of it, yeah. Yeah, I call it a superpower. Hmm. And, and, and I wrote a book about it, ADHD Unlocked, very popular. Try to get it on the camera. There we go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So... Uh, and uh, so, and started speaking about it more. So I'm a very active public speaker throughout North America, mainly. And, uh, you know, and obviously I'm writing another book that uh, comes out, a couple more books, actually. I do at least one book a year. Uh, that book is Living Young, Dying Old. And, and the purpose of the book is not so much as to how old you are in years, but call it the quality of life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so that book will come out next June. So, so I've been uh, fairly active between uh, running close to 10 companies and uh, then uh, uh, podcasting. Uh, I'm fairly active podcasting. Uh, and uh, public speaking, and then obviously the same as books. Hmm. Now, the books, are they available in audio versions? Yes, they are, yeah, on all major media. So somebody wants to get your books, what I'll do is I'll put, put them in the description. So, yeah. So anybody... And put it in, uh, on Google, yeah. Yeah, uh, fantastic. So, uh, yeah, johnabring.com. Hmm. So, so working at these or building these 10 companies up, um, that must have taken quite a bit of time and, and courage and, and, and funds. So you've obviously driven to, to, to be able to get to where you are. And are you still working that hard nowadays? Yeah, I, mean, I am. Eight, 80, 
83 November the 1st, yeah. So, so I work uh, probably 60 hours a week at least, yeah. And and, and that just keeps you going. <laughs> keeps yeah, keeps like you out of mischief, I guess. Yeah, the other thing that I do is I go to the gym, stay in shape. Uh, I've been a competitive bodybuilder. I'm probably the oldest uh, competitive bodybuilder in North America. And, uh, you know, and I like it. I enjoy it. Uh, qualified for bodybuilding in northern British Columbia, uh, second in bodybuilding, third in physique. That qualified me for the provincials, came in third in bodybuilding, second physique. That qualified me for the nationals in the Arnolds. Then came wow. COVID. I started again on bodybuilding. I will compete again when I'm 84. Wow. <laughs> well, you're a real inspiration there. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm only 65 and underneath this gorgeous exterior, there's an absolute train wreck going on at the moment. <laughs> I, I, I struggle at getting out of bed in the morning. Um, and some mornings I can't even do that. Not without help anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, nothing more important than there's only one of you and uh, mm. to stay fit healthy, uh, you know, uh, from diet as well as exercise. Everybody doesn't have to be competitive like I am, but to, mm. to keep in shape physically, mentally, and diet, extremely important. And, uh, yeah. and then that to me means, uh, uh, that's what my book is all about, uh, uh, living young, dying old is that uh, stay fit, stay uh, uh, mentally, physically, watch your diet, be proactive in terms of, uh, uh, you know, this precious body that we have. We only have fun of it, although it is very forgiving, but there's only so much of it. And a lot of people give up and say, I'm too old for that. I'm too old for this. I'm too old for that, right? So lay on the couch, watch TV, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't quite do that. I, I try and get myself moving it every day, but uh, um, yeah, I'm riddled with rheumatoid arthritis, a load of osteoarthritis going on, and a few other things, um, and and it's a bit of a struggle at times. But we're not talking about me so much. We're talking about you. So, in all that time that you've been in Canada, have you ever been back to Holland? Back oh yeah, you too. I still have an apartment in Holland. I still have some business involvement in Holland and uh, not doing COVID, but normally I, what I like to do is go a couple of times a year, go back. It's so easy now, right? So I, I've yeah. even gone, I used to go for four or five days or for a week maximum. And, uh, you know, so uh, it's not a problem. It's easy enough, right? Hmm. So much easier than when I came here. Yeah. I guess uh, I guess you've you've really settled there. So you, you're obviously a Canadian citizen now. Do you have dual dual um, nationality? No, I'm uh, I'm Canadian. I didn't preserve my Dutch. Uh, I don't intend to go back there to live. Uh, mm -hmm. My I live here in Canada. I'm proud to be a Canadian. I love it, and I love Canada. I love British Columbia. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a wonderful place to to live. Yes. So, did you get married at all there? Oh yeah, I'm married. Yeah. 
So you got, been, you got married? More than 40 years, yeah. Blimey, you must have got on with it then. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah. So, out of all your achievements, what do you think is your greatest achievement to date? My greatest achievement? Mm hmm. I believe to be considered to be a good person, a good businessman too, but a good person, to be active in the community and, and to give back uh, culturally. That's how I was brought up, is to be active in your community and, and in the culture around it. And to be, I love making presentations to young people Although I speak to my, uh, you know, my keynote speeches are going across the board, being motivational, entrepreneurship, and all the other things. Obviously, ADHD is one of them, and uh, all of those kind of things. But uh, first and foremost is to be active in the community and in the province and in, the, in Canada and uh, to give back, you know, so... Uh, making money to me has never been a priority, uh, uh, you know, to, but to be active in the community to me is important and to be interactive with young people. Yeah. So you, you've got around about sort of 400 people on your, on your books across your different companies. Yeah. Do you ever take an active part in, in recruiting them or do you leave it up to the um, the human resources department. Well, we have human resources in each of our companies and some of them under the umbrella. Senior management, I'm very involved in in terms of making sure that we attract the right people, right? Hmm. And uh, so direct, indirectly, I'm the sole owner of my companies and... Uh, so it's not a public company and there's not a multiple shareholders. It's just myself and our company, uh, which is kind of out of the ordinary. Usually it's uh, companies yeah. size usually have either are public or otherwise have many other shareholders. I don't, I just have myself mm. and it gives me, I'm being very proactive in making sure that, it follows principles that are important to me. Hmm. That sounds good. So, I mean, you, you, how, how have you coped with, I mean, obviously there's been a few recessions over the years. I mean, 2007, eight, um, had a massive impact on lots and lots of people. Has that affected you at all? I started my company in 1975, this company, nearly 50 years, next year, 49 years, actually. And uh, I've been through seven or eight major downturns. Then 2007, eight, nine, I considered that to be probably one of the most challenging recessions approaching depression, but it was dwarfed 
by COVID and what follows COVID, mm. including today. Still, business is difficult and challenging. But I obviously have survived all the other ones. I'm, uh, I've been there before. And that is the most important ability for management to grow companies and, and, and deal with adversity is experience. And I'm fortunate enough that I have lots of it. You know. So you built in lots of resilience into your companies to be able to withstand these these challenging times. I mean, how yeah. did how how did the, the pandemic affect your businesses? How did it affect your workforce? Were they able to come into work? Were they, no, that, were they furloughed? No, they mostly kept working in our case, but a lot of times were affected physically by COVID. And so then since COVID really, the workforce is still not back to where it used to be at one point. And it may still take more time. You know, it, it was the adversity of it uh, affected all levels of individuals and governments, companies throughout the world. And it will still take time. Even now, our absentee rates are very high. And the people that have not come back to the workforce, there's a shortage of skill sets in particular, all directly and indirectly affects of COVID and COVID-related issues that made things change. Hmm. Do you have a workforce that, that works from home at all? Or, or do... We did, not less so now, but we did uh, a portion hmm. of it, yeah. Because I, I know lots and lots of companies, and particularly um, the government side of things, civil service uh, over here, lots of them are still working from home and not being overly productive. Um, do, you, so, do, do you see the similar sort of thing over there in Canada? Well, with all due respect to my friends that work for government, uh, hard work has never been part of that, uh, really. Uh, so uh, we try to avoid them in our companies and uh, you know so uh, yeah they uh, probably the same issues that you have there we have here uh, you know and then in our company we instill I like to see urgency and I like to see commitment to quality and a number of other things and uh, uh, that is sometimes harder to achieve people from Eastern Europe are more uh, committed and appreciative of their jobs. Uh, I'm not always sure that is the case with our local mm. or regional workforce. So, John, where do you see yourself going in the next, say, five years? Well, a couple of things. I, I intend to be uh, diving, I'm 120. You know, so I'm going to be around for quite a while. And yeah. and then in the next five years, uh, we probably will change our company. We will 
double probably in size and, uh, you know, working towards that, uh, uh, you know, depending on what will happen around the world. Obviously, we are well aware of uh, uh, situations in Eastern Europe, the Ukraine. Uh, obviously, we are well aware of uh, uh, Israel and, uh, you know, in the whole situation yeah. there that uh, uh, once we get back to stability of some sort, that I think the underlying economy is has the potential of being strong. So I look at that, that five years from now, uh, you know, 2028, 2030, uh, we'll see strong economies in Europe and North America, in Asia. And, uh, you know, more and more what we see, Tim, is that the marketplace, even for companies like ours, is more and more global. Mm. And we will be very active in that. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the other part about it is that uh, that is my companies. The other thing, personally, I will be, again, very active as a in-demand keynote speaker. I will write at least one book a year, and I will be very active in podcasting. Uh, you know, I uh, do about, usually about 13 podcasts a month, three a week. And then I'm usually at least a guest, like on your show here, uh, on one show per week. So I think we probably approaching 200 podcasts or so and uh, of all different topics all across the board and uh, all across the world. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of what I do. Fantastic. Well, John, I think you've had something of a, a fascinating life from, I mean, from th that, that awful start in life uh, during the Second World War. Uh, to to where you are nowadays, and uh, much much respect for that. And the key to it, in the foundation to it, Tim. That I that's why I tell people, not yeah. so much twenty five forty seven, but attitude, attitude, remain positive, avoid negative, find that passion, you know. And then if you don't, I, I heard a, a, a program on in the U.S. Uh, channel uh, in the last couple of weeks that said 70% of the people in the United States don't like their job. And 75% of the 70% are looking for other jobs. And I say, not good, not healthy. Find yeah. something you love to do and then give it Absolutely. all you want. And then work ethic and the combination of the all means success. Absolutely. And that's how I look at it. I usually get up at 5.30 in the morning, and I always feel I'm late. And uh, so I'm always in a hurry. <laughs> Fantastic. So having a positive mental attitude, a passion, and that work ethic has got you to where you are today. No question about that. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, John, for sharing. 
Thanks, Sam. Was my pleasure. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Yeah. Well, what a life story. I think John has really shown that with a little bit of positive mental attitude, passion and work ethic, you can achieve just about anything. So, until next time, TTFN, ta-ta for now. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows, and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.